0: Hello and welcome to the menu on Monocle24, I am Marcus Hippie. This week we ventured to Oslo to hear from the man behind the legendary Maemo
1: restaurant. Nordic is an expression. Nordic is not only defined by the ingredients. You know, it, if it makes sense, well, it's Nordic. So I think there's no point in being that kind of conservative in your produce.
0: Then a new magazine from Canada that celebrates the best of food and drink.
2: There are certainly serious topics that we cover, but for us, food is inherently joyful, and we wanted to, in everything that we do, express that underlying sense of joy and pleasure.
0: We'll also head to Italy for the inaugural Slow Wine Trade Fair. All that and a dinner soundtrack recommendation ahead on this edition of The Menu here on Monocle24. To Oslo first, where for 12 years one name has dominated the fine dining scene, Danish chef Esben Holmboe Bang opened his restaurant Maemo there in 2010 and eventually won three Michelin stars. In 2019 he closed the old Maemo, Emo automatically losing all three stars, but reopened in a new space in the city centre in 2020. Monaco's Denmark correspondent Michael Booth met up with Esben in Oslo recently to hear about why he closed and what happened next, including with those stars and about Bank's growing restaurant and bar empire in the Norwegian capital.
1: We felt that we've gone as far as we could in the space we were in so we felt to evolve further we had to find some new premises. Was that an economic thing or a kitchen ability thing? Well it was just a space thing to be honest it was just elbows were touching the walls everywhere we went and both in an actual way but also in like an abstract way so every time we we tried to do something new it kind of felt we were constrained by the space
3: but it's, it's a huge thing it must be to give up three michelin stars yeah. after working so hard to earn them and keep them did that factor
1: into the decision or was it was it like i gotta do it we had to do it of course putting everything on the line was nerve-wracking or is nerve-wracking do you talk to michelin at that stage and say look we're going to close down can we have them back when we open up please? Yeah. <laughs> and uh, we informed we of course we informed michelin what we were doing and we them updated and in the loop i didn't ask for my stars back but uh, of course uh, i still feel three michelin stars is such a high recognition so we're super proud to have them back because you got them back at the end of last year yeah. straight off the bat you didn't have to go through earning one two three they gave them straight back to you how long after you'd opened again well we were closed down because of the pandemic so it took a while so i think it was a year so you've been in oslo for 16 years now earned three
3: stars and now you've got this growing empire of restaurants how many do you have and can you introduce where we're sitting now which is the latest of your children it's yeah. going to open just after easter
1: well empire is a, is a strong word but i have uh, five six places now you know i have mimo of course which is like the beating heart of everything i do i have a place called the vandalay which is kind of an all-day breakfast lunch dinner place i have a place called the conservatory which is a cocktail bar, a small speakeasy cocktail bar uh, with a high focus on music, uh, and we try to create like a musical listening universe. And then I have a place called August, which is more of like a cafe, also an all-day, a uh, little bit rowdy in the in the evenings and the weekends. And then this place that we're sitting in now, Mon-Uncle. Mon-Uncle. Yeah, not Mon-Uncle, but Mon-Uncle. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's the, uh, the idea behind Mon-Uncle? You know, when we moved mymo, We started the whole creative process of rediscovering the menu and and these things. And that creative process kind of unlocked something in me. Like, I kind of missed classic cooking. And there is a lot of classic cooking at MIMO. But we can't fully, fully dig into, like, the nouvelle cuisine, like the French classics and these things, because it's a different expression. So Mononcle is that outlet, that urge to cook those things. Is it to go fully French? I wouldn't say fully French it's like continental I would say like it's an international cuisine but you know a lot of the cooking done in late 80s early 90s is French based so we are revisiting classics we're going to do Pigeon Rossini Wellington's and and these things so yes I would say the base is French but we try to update it a little bit I mean there are going to be a lot of
3: Frenchmen twiddling their mustaches with delight at this because you guys you new Nordic guys you kind of uh, dissed classical french cooking for a long it did was like we? you kind of I had to reject it well you done had that. you rejected it yeah, let's okay. say and there was definitely some trash talk going on about 15 10 15 years ago but french cuisine seems to it never dies
1: really does it it is timeless and you know tasty food is tasty food we don't care if it's french or argentinian or nordic or whatever it is so we just want to cook tasty food and, and this is more of a yeah french outlet but you did used to care i'm
3: sorry to push this point point, okay, but my theory is that New Nordic has become so confident and so successful and so globally
1: dominant that you can relax a bit on the dogma. Yeah, well, I also think you get more secure in what you do. And I felt like the whole New Nordic, if you want to call it that, or Nordic, it became like a reaction to something, you know. And when that reaction has been established, and that has been now kind of a very, yeah, established cuisine, like it's not, no longer a reaction you know, it's a fact.
3: You've taken your place at the table. Yeah,
1: and that kind of gives you the security to, all right, okay, let's revisit some of the things that we were reacting to. And how, does, how will Mon Uncle fit into Oslo as a food city?
3: I mean, I live in Denmark, you're mm-hmm. Danish. You'll be aware the Danes are a bit sniffy about Oslo and, oh, yeah. and that it's like five years behind everything. But you guys have maybe put that to rest, that reputation. I, I'm seeing a city walking around here the last couple of days that's um,
1: really blossoming food-wise. Yeah, I think, I I know it's a cliche to say that five years behind and all this, but to be honest, if that's a fact that we're five years behind, I would say, well, that's a good thing because then we can see what everybody else is doing before we have to make our own (laughs) path and and see what mistakes they do. But I don't think that the five years behind works because they're creating their own path here. And in parallel to what Copenhagen is doing or Stockholm, if, if that's the comparison, I think Oslo has come into its right of its own. Um, How do you
3: define the dining scene in Oslo now? Where, what, what's what's kind of
1: trendy? What's happening here at the moment? <laughs> well, I think well, I don't care about trends, but I th- I do think that what we see now is a lot of like mid-range restaurants, like where you know the younger generation can go out and have fun without breaking the bank, and of course there's a lot of focus on, on wine and and these things. So it's a very kind of the relaxed places are the ones that are doing really well at the moment. Like That's the stuff I'm doing at August, for instance. That It's really popular and it's such a small space and they, hundreds of people buy every day. So I think that's like fun places with loud music and stuff. That's what's kicking right now, I think. And the future of MyEmo. I mean, you've achieved everything you can possibly achieve in a way, but how do you see the cuisine evolving in the next few years? We just stay on our path. MyMO is a steadfast operation where it 100% evolves around my cooking. So whatever kind of process I'm in, that's where mymo is going. But it's a very defined expression, and mymo is yeah, that's my whole heart. Well, kind of, where, where's your heart leading you these days, in <laughs> terms of ingredients and styles, or I, I think. My MO is also, like, I'm also getting older, or oh, getting older, I, I'm older now than I was when we opened, and obviously more secure in what I'm doing, and I don't try to kind of like reinvent the wheel all the time, I'm I'm very confident in what we do, so I think we've stripped down the theatrics a bit, like, obviously the space is a bit more luxurious, and I try not to be so stuck in that dogma thing that you were mentioning earlier, and, and I try to not put restraints on myself in terms of creativity anymore. So I would say the cooking, yeah, it's more, it's more secure. Nordic is an expression. Nordic is not only defined by the ingredients. You know, it, if it makes sense, well, it's Nordic. So I think there's no point in being that kind of conservative in your produce.
3: It's always interesting to watch great chefs get older because mm. there is almost this, a bit like all artists, whether, you know, painters or musicians, Simplicity comes with age because you're not trying to
1: impress, I guess. But I think it's about being confident, daring to do what feels right for you and not try to add things in order to get some sort of reaction. You know, I'm completely confident in what we do, so we don't have to add the theatrics.
0: It's been homeboy Bang there in discussion with Monocle's Michael Booth. We head to Toronto next to hear from the brewer and restaurateur Max Meehan. In 2019, Max opened his first restaurant, Aveling, a microbrewery, dining room and urban farm in the city's blossoming east end. And now Aveling has a new offering to add to that list. A fine new standalone magazine called Serviette, which aims to celebrate in print the best of food and drink and the people who produce Monaco's bureau chief in Toronto, Thomas Louis, spoke to Max about why a foray into print felt like an appropriate next step for his food and drink business.
2: The magazine, it certainly blends elements of contemporary design. It feels in some ways quite kind of of the moment but also in the topics that we're covering, we wanted things to be a bit more timeless or at least universal. So it feels quite fresh, quite accessible, fun. There was a real sense of playfulness that we wanted to communicate with the design. Because so much of the public dialogue these days is quite serious and quite, I mean, I, I hesitate to use negative, but it's, that seems to be the, the case. And there are certainly serious topics that we cover, but for us, food is inherently joyful and we wanted to, in everything that we do, express that underlying sense of joy and pleasure. So we don't shy away from serious topics. We touch on things like the uh, emerging indigenous food scene in Canada and how a trio of female indigenous chefs are expressing and and in some ways refining their culture through food. We spoke to a a Canadian expert in uh, institutional food and what sort of policies there need to potentially um, be changed in order to bring about better food in schools and hospitals and so yeah as I say the, the content it's sort of it's serious it's engaging but always with a sense of fun and play and optimism so the kind of mantra for serviette as a whole is everything is food and by that we mean that food sort of touches on on so many aspects of our lives that it's difficult to talk about any kind of issue or think about anything kind of productive or constructive in this day and age without considering food in some way. And for our first issue, we took that as the theme as well. So as you flip through, each piece is quite boldly titled with a sort of blank is food. So we have the city is food, laughter is food, community is food, responsibility is food. And there is a sense I think we want to draw people in with those slightly enigmatic little aphorisms and sort of pique their interest into how it is that we feel food really is sort of in so much of our daily lives and through that kind of open people's perspectives a little bit or or make them think about an issue that they sort of feel maybe is quite familiar but in in a slightly different way and you know to come back to that point of, of joyfulness that you mentioned you know even in the sort of food is responsibility there's there's a sense of connecting something so joyful as food to responsibility or culture regeneration i feel as though you can't help but be hopeful and bring a sense of optimism to uh these sort of broad categories that we all think about so much these days
4: and to look at the story of of avling itself Maybe walk us through, you know, a restaurant, a brewery, and an urban farm as it is now, how all those different chapters of the story sort of evolved over the years for somewhere that really has sort of become a, an anchor, I don't think it's over it to say, in the corner of
2: Toronto that you're in. Well, that's very generous of you to say, but the development of Abling was sort of at once quite almost predictable, but also a bit of a surprise in some ways. My first career was in restaurant kitchens. I was a cook here in Toronto, in uh, Montreal as well as in London in, in the UK. And it was while I was in London living and working, very much enjoying restaurant kitchens, but it sort of occurred to me that maybe this wasn't the best use of my time doing 14 hour days when I had a new city, a new country, and a new continent to explore. So London at the time was going through its own craft beer boom as so many cities have done so in the last 15 years. And it, with kind of no experience previously in the field, it struck me as something that was equally as creative, but technical, Uh, I could work with my hands and what I knew of the kind of community in London was was really intriguing. So much like I did at the beginning of my culinary career, I started volunteering at various breweries and and really kind of what was supposed to be a, a six or nine month sabbatical in the craft beer world turned into the last 10 plus years. And so... When I moved back to Toronto, I was sort of at a loss, really, of what I wanted to do. I I always thought starting something of my own was something I wanted to do, and a brewery, given my experience, seemed logical, but I really, the question of who was going to care, why did Toronto need another craft brewery, was, it really struck me. I I thought to myself, you know, why am I the one who's going to kind of figure this out and and really bring something unique to uh, what was then an already very crowded craft beer market? And as it happened, I was reading a book by the American chef Dan Barber at the time. I was reading his book, The Third Plate. It's an account of his journey through discovering and understanding what it really means to him to be a farm-to-table chef and how, even while he called himself a farm-to-table chef in, in the early stages of his career, he came to realize that he was still dictating to farmers what it is that he wanted and that that wasn't really being as supportive as he thought he was being. To me, it was really, really striking because he, at the beginning of his journey, speaking about how cover crops were these completely underappreciated or even unknown element of a regenerative farming cycle. And his sort of aha moment, his breakthrough moment was with a dish he calls the rotation risotto. So instead of using Italian arboreal rice, he created a risotto with rye berries wheat kernels, barley, all of these grains that the farmers that he was working with most closely were planting as part of the rotations, but were never being considered as a sort of edible product for market. His farmers were planting these things for the sake of the soil, because they understood the value and the need to have really healthy soils. And so there was a light bulb that went off for me, seeing barley, oats, and rye, Those are all brewing grains, and I thought, well, maybe Aveling, or maybe it wasn't Aveling at that time, but maybe a brewery could situate itself in a really unique position in that cycle, and instead of just using a couple kilos here and there for bread, what if we could use dozens of tons and really kind of create a whole new market for these grains and provide added value to a regenerative farming cycle. And not only does a farmer get a new income stream, a a new product to bring to market while still getting the benefit to their soils, but also we got a product that had a more authentic local story. And that was really intriguing to me because in the food world, in the culinary scene, the conversation is constantly around provenance terroir. What ingredient are we using? Why are we using it? What story does that tell? And in the craft beer world's the approach often seemed like a a more is more mentality. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it did kind of sit awkwardly with me given the culinary background that I had. And so I was really intrigued to see if you could create a brewery that took that same approach with its sourcing and was able to provide added value where there hadn't been before.
4: The idea that, you know, Aveling has become this venue that sort of does so much, has so many principles and ways of doing things that are woven through it. Taking a bird's eye view of, you know, the hospitality offering in Toronto, which is understandably very well regarded for the array of restaurants, the array of food and drink that's available here. But I wonder if the the sort of Aveling model where you do so much, and I suppose try to do so much that perhaps isn't that common in how maybe lots of other restaurants run and exist. You know, how difficult is that to sort of keep all of those plates in the air? But also do you think it might offer a bit of a template perhaps going forward if that isn't too grand a way of looking at your own business. But you know, is there something that, you know, you're showing that you can do a lot of these things in quite imaginative ways but also do them in a sustainable and substantive way as well? I'm
2: really really lucky and fortunate and so thankful to be able to come to work with people who still share and exude that passion for food and hospitality every day. And so a template, things have changed. Things have certainly changed in food and and restaurants. And I do believe many more places are going to think beyond those six or seven services a week. I will admit there's not many places out there probably that will be able to or will want to combine a brewery and a rooftop farm with their restaurant but more diversified and more integrated approach to food I really believe is the future it's better for suppliers it's better for customers it's better for staff and and we're just really excited to continue exploring it and and see how it ends up improving the experience and putting more delicious food and drink on the plate
0: Max Mian of Toronto's Avling Restaurant and Microbrewery speaking to Monocle's Thomas Lewis about his new food and drink-focused magazine, Serviet. And you can find out more by heading to serviettemag.com Before this week's dinner soundtrack recommendation, we delve into the wonderful world of viticulture at the first ever slow wine event in Bologna. Organised by Italy's famed slow food movement, the inaugural edition of the slow wine trade fair this spring looked to put the spotlight on winemakers who are working to safeguard the environment with low intervention artisanal methods in the cellar. Monaco's Milan correspondent Ivan Cavaglio journeyed to Bologna to meet these professionals and to sample the latest vintages.
5: Started in 1986, Italy's slow food movement was created to defend regional food traditions against globalisation. This also extended to wine. Since 2010, Their Slow Wine Guide, which shuns the point rating system of mainstream publications, has been a key resource to highlight smaller producers who value terroir and the rich diversity of grape varieties found in the vineyards. This spring, the movement went one step further and put on their first wine trade show, bringing together over 500 quality-minded producers eager to pour their product to a thirsty public. Among the standouts at the inaugural edition was winemaker Chiara Condello from Emilia-Romagna.
6: Here you have the first of the two wines that I produce, which is one of the two Sangiovese that I do from my estate. Actually, my winery started in 2015, when I found some old vines that the previous owner wanted to take away, and I decided to save them. So that's uh, the beginning of my story, so I think it's nice to start tasting also with this wine, that is the wine made from those vineyards.
5: Now Chiara, this is uh, Sangiovese we're yeah. drinking.
6: I'm based in Predappio, up on the Appennini Mountains, so in between uh, Bologna, the Adriatic Sea, and Florence. Uh, So just uh, squashed uh, in between the mountains and the sea, in a place uh, which is historical for producing Sangiovese. So the only variety that I grow is Sangiovese, and I grow the native kind of Sangiovese. So it's Sangiovese from Predappio.
5: Now, people abroad think of Sangiovese, they think of Tuscany. So explain here the difference with the varietal in Emilia Romagna
6: the Sangiovese that I have is a Sangiovese piccolo. So Sangiovese where the dimension of the bunch is smaller, but also the berry is smaller. So we have more skin compared to the juice. And this ends up in having quite a lot of color in the wine, but also in having a Sangiovese that expresses itself with a lot of fruitiness, but at the same time a very elegant structure. So a lot of tannins, but very, very soft and round.
5: And in terms of the winemaking techniques, you try to keep it low intervention in terms of what you do in the cellar after you pick your harvest?
6: I try to be very respectful in all the phases of my production, so from the vineyard till the cellar. In the cellar I do all indigenous yeast fermentation, carried out in open tine or little vets, and I do quite long maceration with the skin. And after the racking, I'd age the wine in the big barrel, so in the big cask, which is the traditional oak cask that we use in my region.
5: Moving on, I venture to exhibitors from Puglia, a region gaining more attention of late. Camilla rossi Chauvenet, a producer from Val Policella outside Verona, has, since 2008, invested in a winery down south, Masseria Couturi, which is linked to the earliest plantings of the local Primitivo di Manduria grape. Camilla Rossi-Giovanet.
7: I'm pouring Tumà, uh, Primitivo 2020. It's a Primitivo made with, uh, in a steel tank. So it's a really simple and elegant wine made in steel tank because this represents the richness uh, and uh, the purity of this variety. We came here in Manduria from Valpolicella just because of this pureness, uh, this richness, because we are really close to the sea, just three, four kilometers from the sea, and these soil are so rich in uh, clay that produce this specific uh, and characteristic uh, identity that represents uh, this Primitivo. And uh, it's really drinkable, it's really refreshed, and uh, I think it's really different from other Primitivo. This because, actually, you probably imagine Primitivo as something like a bomb of fruit. And it is, but uh, without uh, all this uh, sugar that you could imagine in it. So our aim, our um, idea of Primitivo is uh, something drinkable, but at the same time really juicy and refreshing.
5: Staying in Puglia, I came across a new winery, La Sorte Quadra, looking to protect native white varietals with a rich story behind them. Stephanie Quadra, owner of La Sorte Quadra.
8: This is Silos 2020 and it's our debut vintage as La Sorte Quadra in Martina Franca, Valeditria in Puglia. It's a heritage field blend of four native grapes, Verdeca, Bianco D'Alessano, Maresco and Minutolo. These are grapes that we could consider endangered species. So. Part of the project, part of the ethos behind this project is really to try to salvage these grapes and highlight their uniqueness and really highlight the characteristics that are typical of the Valle So the thing that's most interesting about this project is that when most people think of Puglia, they think of red wines, big structured wines. Well, this is a different side of Puglia. We're at a high altitude. We're about 420 meters above sea level. We're on a highland plateau, limestone. So this is the land of white grapes, and they're white grapes that once upon a time were used really a hundred years ago for the production of, of vermouth. Most of these grapes were being exported or transported up north to Piemonte to make vermouth. And so they never really formed an identity. They were never known to the outside world because they were really anonymously being absorbed into another product that ultimately was branded as a product of Piemonte. So here we are really trying to give a new life to these grapes that, if someone doesn't intervene right now, literally within 10 years, they could be completely extinct.
5: And now this white wine, for you, it's more a wine for gastronomy and not as an aperitif.
8: Yeah, that's right. It's it's actually interesting because if you think of a a white, fresh, high acidity white wine from Southern Italy, you think of something that you would just enjoy as an aperitif, and by all means, you certainly could enjoy a wine like Silos as an aperitif, but what we're finding is that this is a wine that really shows its best at the table, at the dinner table. It requires food to really express itself.
5: Highlighting the qualities of local grapes and their distinctive characteristics was important to exhibitors at Slow Wine, who follow traditional methods and respect the soil that helps ensure extraordinary results in the bottle. For Monocle in Bologna, I'm Ivan Carvalho.
0: And that's all for this edition of The Menu. Remember that we're back with a new episode again on Friday at twenty hundred London time. That's at midday if you're listening in Portland, Oregon. Meanwhile, do check out our menu spin-off show Food Neighbourhoods for Great Recipes. This show was edited and mixed by David Stevens and I am Marcus Hippi. Once again we finish this program with a dinner soundtrack recommendation. From Italy, here is Mattia Bazar with Di